This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity and privilege to gather together in freedom to study your word. We thank you for this nation, for the freedom that we have to teach your word, to disseminate the gospel, to send missionaries overseas. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide this freedom, give wisdom to our president, to those in Congress, to civilian leadership, military leadership, to carry out their duties, that they might be effective in securing our borders. Father, we continue to pray for us as a church that we might keep our focus, recognize that we are here for the purpose of learning your word, learning doctrine, applying it in our lives, and advancing to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you might help us keep that focus, stay strong, provide for our logistical needs as we continue to press on to the high ground of spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray as we study your word today that we would be challenged by these things and respond to the challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Today we're in verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Now, in Revelation 1, 19... The Lord Jesus Christ, who has appeared to the Apostle John, says, Therefore write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things which will take place after these things. And this provides the structure for the book of Revelation. There are three broad divisions. The first division is the things which you have seen, past tense. And this is basically chapter 1. The things that are, present tense, that's chapter 2 and 3, dealing with the cycles of history in the church age. Different types of churches that represent uh, almost all churches during the church age. And then the third division, which is the vast majority of the book of Revelation, the things which will be future tense, this is chapters 4 through 22. This gives us the outline. Now, we have spent our time 
on chapter 1. And chapter 1 can be divided into two sections. You have the introduction to the book in chapter chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And you have the divine command or commission to write down the information in verses 9 to 20. The divine command. Now, what we've done so far is just study the introduction. In the introduction, you have a preface, which introduces the book in in verses 1 through 3. There's a salutation. Now, one of the things that's different about this salutation, if you look at the epistles, the epistles start off that talk about the fact that this is from Paul, an apostle. But Revelation is not from Paul, an apostle. John says, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Son. And this is picked up in the eighth verse, as we saw last time, with this statement of authentication where the Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So you have the salutation. John's the writer, but the revelation of Jesus Christ comes from God the Father. This is what the first verse says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, genitive of source from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to reveal, to display, to exhibit to his servants, things which must quickly take place. So it is from God the Father more so than the epistles. John is simply writing down what he sees as opposed to the epistles where, or the gospels where a human author uh, did research. For example, in the gospels, Luke does historical research, writes the gospels, or writes a letter of instruction, uh, exhortation to uh, a congregation. This has its source in God. So we have our salutation. In verses 4 and 5, the theme of the book of Revelation is given in verse 6. And the theme is, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of Him. The focus is on the coming of Christ, what we call the second coming, when He comes and destroys the forces of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and establishes his kingdom. And then we have the verse of authentication, verse 7, that where God the Father authenticates the message of the book of Revelation. This is verse 7. So that's the introduction. That's what we have covered so far. And the theme of the introduction is to establish the seriousness of the revelation, the apocalypse, that this is serious and twice the imminency of His coming is emphasized. These are given because, uh, revealed because these things must quickly take place, verse 1, and then believers are exhorted in verse 3, blessed is he who reads, that is, the expositional teaching of the Word, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it, for the time is near. In other words, there's a sense of immediacy here. There's a sense of importance. This is why the salutation section focuses so heavily 
on this triune source for God, for, for the apocalypse, that it's from uh, the one who is and was and who is to come, God the Father, the seven spirits who are before His throne, representing the fullness of the Holy Spirit's uh, ministry, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This it gives weight to the revelation, its importance. It comes with its own promise of blessing if we read it and heed it. However, it comes with a curse if we don't at the end of the, at the, end of the apocalypse. So this is the importance, the return of the second coming of, of the Messiah, and that every believer in the church age should understand the apocalypse, the revelation, and its significance for us. And this is why it is specifically authenticated by the voice of God, who is described as the one who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty, in verse 8. This gives us our, our, that's what I have, this section here, one, one through, I missed up here. Salutation is in, one thing I hate about those overhead fans is they blow my pages of Scripture around. The, Theme is verse 7. Salutation is 4, 5, and 6. The theme is 7, and the authentication is in 8. Okay, now we're in the command section. There's a command to the Apostle John to write these things. The original command is given specifically in verse 11. What you see right in a book. It is reiterated in verse 19. Therefore, write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after these things. That's the command at the beginning and at the end of this section. From 1.9 to 1.20, you have that command to write. So that's the theme of this whole section, is to write these things down. So let's give a brief outline Of this section. The author. You have the initial, first of all, you have the initial command in verses 9 through 11. The initial command. You have the commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, described in verses 12 through 18. And then you have The command repeated in verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20. So that gives you an organization for the rest of this chapter. All of this comes under that first category of 1. Uh, 19, write the things which you have seen. By that point, John has already seen these things uh, described in the first chapter. So this is the layout. Now, what is the initial command? The initial command, when we get into this, talks first of all about the author. Who is to write down these things? This is in 1.9a. Then we have the author's Immediate circumstances, 
given in the second part of verse 9, 9b, and verse 10. And then we have the command itself in verse 11. Now that's our organization for this morning. The command, the author, his circumstances, and the command itself. So let's begin in verse 9. I, John, I'm going to read from the New King James, and then we'll straighten some things out. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay, these are the three verses that set up what's happening in the rest of the chapter. Starts off identifying the author, I, John. Now, before we get too far in verse 9, we have to make a couple of notes about the text. In exegesis or in understanding the Word of God, the first thing you have to understand is, what is it that God said? And unfortunately, as I've pointed out in this first chapter, over the course of time, there had been corruption of the original manuscripts. We don't have the original, we just have a lot of copies. And so you'll notice in some of your Bibles that there are notes in the margin. And there's a real difference between two sets of manuscripts. And there's a, there's a theory out there. And I'll just refer to the, uh, the way it began. It was the Westcott-Hort theory, although now it's much more eclectic. And the Westcott-Hort theory basically said the oldest is the best. And I've pointed out that a problem with that is that the oldest is not the best. If you're, you have a document dated, let's say, 390 B.C., and it is a bad copy of a good document, or maybe a bad copy of a bad copy, then it's not any better than, let's say you have another one dated about 895 A.D., uh, not B.C., let's say 390 A.D. You have another uh, manuscript dated 895, but it is a, an accurate copy of, of an original that was r- copied in 250, and that's been lost. So you have... One manuscript dated 895 and another manuscript dated 390. Which is better? The one dated 895, the newer one. Not because it's new, but because it's a better copy of an original. Another problem with the Westcott Hort, or what some call the eclectic text, is it's, and this is what you find in, in like I have here, a Greek New Testament, uh, you, you, you called the UBS text. I think this is UBS 3. And this, this is the uh, critical text, sometimes called the critical text. But if you look through here at the Greek text as it's given in the, in the critical text, you won't find that in any ancient manuscript. 
They've, they've looked at these differences and weighed them. They said, well, this choice is better and that choice is better. And, um, you know, none of these affect doctrine. Let me say that, so I just don't want to confuse you too much. None of this really affects any doctrine. But it does affect how you are going to understand and exegete certain key verses. Where it comes to play mostly is in some passages, like the last part of the last chapter of Mark. Uh, it's not in a lot, a lot of ancient manuscripts. And so, because it's not in these old manuscripts, it's excluded. Same thing with the episode in John 6 with the woman uh, taken in adultery. However, I've explained that in the John series, and that should be in the text. Definitely. So, there's that theory. And then there's the other text called the um, TR, the Textus Receptus. This was based on approximately eight, eight, eight manuscripts none older than about the 9th century A.D. And this was what was used by Erasmus, and this is what underlies the King James Version and the New King James Version. The Westcott-Hort theory is what underlies all others. Okay, so if you've got NIV, NASB, Century Bible, you know, ad infinitum, all the different translations, they're all based on this Westcott-Hort view. Now, if you're sitting there and you've got a King James Version, you've got some stuff in there that's not in the Westcott Hort text. If you've got an NASB and you compare that to an NIV, you'll see some differences, especially here in Revelation. Then there is another view of textual criticism called the majority text view. Now, if you have a New King James Version, you're going to have the Westcott Hort view indicated in an asterisk at the bottom with the abbreviation NU, N for Nestle Allen text, and U for the UBS text. The TR represents the, the New King James. That's what you have in your translation. But the majority text often differs. In, in, in Revelation, the majority text many times has the same reading as the older manuscripts and differs dramatically from the TR. And re, I go, this is about the third time I've gone into this, but it seems to play a lot in this first chapter, and it's important for understanding some of the things that are said. So before we get any further into this, let's just make sure that we straighten out the way it should read, and just in terms of the text. In verse 9, the King James and New King James have the word both. There is no syntax structure in the Greek for the word both. It's just John, uh, your brother, I, John, your brother, and partner in the uh, tribulation kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Now, the majority text and the King James Version all have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in both places, and it should read which are in Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God, and it should also read because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. The preposition is repeated twice in the majority text. So it should read, was on the island that is called Patmos because of the Word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now we have the text right. Okay, what's being said here? Well, John introduces himself for the third time to make sure we know who is the 
uh, writer of this revelation, who is the one writing this down. And we have studied him in the past, and we know that this is the disciple John, later the Apostle John, who was a second or third cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the youngest of all the disciples. He was called in the Gospel of John the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a very close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the last disciple to die. He was, as far as we know, the only disciple who died of old age. And he lived to about the year 100, or some even say 105 A.D. He lived into his 90s. So he lived for approximately five to ten years after he wrote uh, the book of Revelation. After or just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., he left Jerusalem, and according to legend, we don't know, according to tradition, he took Mary with him. Mary was still alive. Remember on the cross, Jesus looked at uh, John and at Mary standing there at the foot of the cross, and he said, Woman, behold your son, and uh, uh, John, behold your mother. He put his, the care of his mother into John's hands. So the view is that Mary went with John to Ephesus, and John pastored in Ephesus for a number of years. This was, and, he, and he oversaw the churches in that area. These churches mentioned here in Revelation, as well as others in that province of Asia that was on the western coast of Turkey. And Mary lived there until she went to be with the Lord. And at that time, there was a, in the early 90s, there was a a persecution from the Roman emperor uh, Diocletian, and he was, or excuse me, Domitian, Diocletian was sometime later, and uh, Domitian and because of that persecution, John was exiled to a small island off the coast of, of Turkey. This is the John that is being written about here. Later on, several centuries later, another theory came up that this was another John that, was, that differed from the John of the Gospel and the John of the Epistles. But this is the same John. Now, it's interesting how he describes himself. He doesn't describe himself as an apostle. He doesn't describe himself as the elder, as he did in Second John and Third John. He describes himself in terms of his relationship to the readers, not in terms of his position of authority. Now, why is that? Well, it goes back to what I pointed out earlier in the introduction. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is, Jesus Christ. John is recording the revelation, but he is, it is not originating from his own apostolic authority. This is not his message to the church. It is the message from Jesus Christ to the church. And so the issue here isn't John's authority. It's the authority of God. That's why you have this verse at the end of The introduction seems to just be stuck in there. just comes out of nowhere. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. It doesn't seem to fit anything else, but it is this stamp of authority and authentication on the introduction. So John is simply giving the circumstances now of his commission to write down the things that he sees in these visions in the book of Revelation. 
I, John, and he says, both your, uh, he says, your brother and your companion. That's a corrected translation. No both there. Just your brother and companion. Now, the word for brother is the Greek word adolphos, which simply means a brother. It can mean, refer to a physical brother, but it is frequently used in the scripture to refer between one member of the body of Christ and another member of the body of Christ. There's no sexism here. It is a, it's recognizing the fact that we are all sons of God. This is a technical term. This isn't a sexist term. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're not a son of God. You have to understand the Bible in the terms of the time in which it was written. And the time in which it was written to be an adopted son was to mean that you were an heir of the one who adopted you. And so this is legal terminology. And it indicates the high status given to every single believer as an adopted child of God, an adopted son of God. Uh, a daughter would not have that privilege under uh, the Roman Empire in that situation. So we have to understand this in the time in which it was written. So John says he's your, their, their brother and companion. Now the word companion is an interesting word. It's a word that is used many times by the Apostle Paul, but it's also used by other New Testament writers. And again, we have a slight variant in different manuscripts. What we have in the, uh, probably in the majority text, is koinonias. Koinonias. And this means partner related to the word for fellowship, someone who is a joint uh, participant in something, someone who shares in something. Now, if you want to overemphasize this idea of being a joint participant or partner, then you can add the preposition soon, which the N becomes a G here, and it looks like it's pronounced like an N. Soon koinonias. Now, some manuscripts have just koinonias, others have soon koinonias, but the meaning really doesn't differ. The emphasis here is there is a certain partnership, a certain commonality between John and every believer that's reading this. In other words, it's written just as much to John and is just as much a challenge to John in his personal spiritual life as it is to you and to me. And that's the emphasis here. So we have on the one hand, he uses these two terms, brother, emphasizing that he is, just like the rest of us, an adopted child of God in the family of God, royal aristocracy in the church age, but he is also a partner or co-participant joint participant in the spiritual life. That's on the one hand, but it's modified and explained by a prepositional clause. And that prepositional clause has three nouns as its object. In the, and it's usually translated in the kingdom, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tribulation, Kingdom 
and patience. Now, it might be easy to take a look at these three terms and say those refer to three different events. However, in the Greek, you have a definite article here right after the preposition, which, which let me tell you, is very rare. Usually, a preposition replaces the article. But by including the article, which looks like this, T-E in English, by including the article, there's an emphasis on the fact that there's one article which governs all three nouns. And in the Greek, this represents an idiom, a rare idiom called a hendiatris. Hendiatris, T-R-I-S. Now, some of you have heard me mention before this idiom, a hendiadis. This is two. Tris is three. See, you have three nouns here, so it's a hendiatris. And in a hendiadis or a hendiatris, it's the use of two words or three words, as the case may be, with only one thought intended. In other words, these three nouns are so closely related in the mind of the author in terms of what he's trying to communicate. It's not that they're synonymous but they all work and tie together as one thought. So the best way to translate this is to translate it as adversity hyphen kingdom hyphen endurance. And for that's what the words mean. The word translated tribulation is the Greek word thlipsis. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. And I prefer translating it adversity because... It's easy to look at this in light of the general message of the book of Revelation, talking about the Great Tribulation, which is that seven-year period known in the Old Testament as the period of the time of Jacob's trouble or Daniel's 70th week. And we talk about the Tribulation. And the Tribulation has become sort of a technical term for us in English. But too often people get the crazy notion that if we believe in the rapture, then we don't believe that Christians go through tribulation. Sure, we go through tribulation. We go through tribulation and suffering, lowercase t, uh, adversity. But it's not the same as the great tribulation or the tribulation period, that seven-year period that precedes the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. So we should translate it here as adversity because this is just talking about the special kind of adversity that comes into every single believer's life. So it's adversity and then second kingdom, and it should be translated kingdom. I heard someone say that maybe this should be translated power. No, it should not be translated power. The word for power is dunamis. While it is true that the concept of basileia can refer to the power, it's the power of a kingdom. It's not isolated spiritual power. It is the power that is related to the authority of a kingdom. You can't separate it from the basic meaning of basileia, which means kingdom or dominion, or the power exercised by that dominion. So it is focusing on the fact that the kingdom here is the future coming kingdom, the future messianic kingdom that uh, comes in, When Jesus Christ returns, we're not in it now in any way, shape, or form. There's no partial kingdom. There's no uh, uh, kingdom that's gradually coming in. 
which not already here, but not fully yet here. There is no kingdom at all. Jesus Christ is not on the throne of David. He is on the Father's throne, seated at the Father's right hand. And the kingdom does not begin until He returns at the second coming. And then the word translated patience is the word hupa mones. And hupa mones, H-U-P-O, M-O-N-E-S is from a compound of hupa meaning under and the Greek verb meno meaning to stay means to remain under or to stay under pressure to stay under adversity to be steadfast it's not just the idea of patience that's usually the word uh, trans, the word uh, long uh, suffering and it's, it's a completely different word this has the idea of endurance. And these three ideas are deeply related in the idea or in the thinking of the writer. Because John is focusing on the fact that where this is all headed in history is we're going to the kingdom. We are headed to the kingdom of Jesus Christ and we are currently being prepared. We go back to what I taught in the previous verse back in uh, verse 6 that he has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, and that we will rule and reign as priests in the millennial kingdom. And we're in our training ground right now. And that training ground involves adversity, and we have to endure by applying doctrine consistently in the midst of adversity, and that prepares us for the kingdom. So in the mind of John at this point, all three of these ideas are interrelated. He, he speaks of them as one grammatically. It is, it is the adversity kingdom endurance that we all share. It's this whole matrix of the spiritual life. That's what he is talking about here. We are all joint participants in the adversity kingdom endurance of Jesus Christ that is part of our role and, and uh, place in Jesus Christ. And actually, it's not translated of Jesus Christ. It should be translated in Jesus Christ. It's in plus um, in indicates that this is part of our responsibility uh, as members of the royal family of Jesus Christ. So John emphasizes who he is here. He is a fellow member of the body of Christ, he is a fellow member of royal aristocracy, but he is emphasizing his position as any other believer, a, a brother and a co-participant in this dynamic of spiritual growth. So let's review briefly the doctrine of adversity and stress. First point, there are two kinds of pressures in life. Two kinds of pressures in life. There's adversity and there is stress. Let's distinguish between them. Adversity is the inevitable outside pressure of life that attacks and seeks to disrupt the soul. It's the outside, inevitable outside daily pressure that seeks to disrupt your soul. On the other hand, stress is the optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external pressures. So when you put a piece of metal through a stress test, what you're doing is you're applying external pressure to reveal internal flaws. 
That's what God does for us, is He puts us under the pressure of outside circumstances in order to reveal our human frailties and inability so that we will learn to trust Him and not try to handle problems on our own. So that you have the outside pressure of adversity and the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Point number two. There are two categories of adversity. Two categories of adversity, let's say. The first is general adversity as a result of the law of volitional responsibility. We make bad decisions and the result is we get into adverse circumstances. This is true for everyone, believer or unbeliever. Principle for this is Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. This he will also reap. But the second category of adversity is a category of adversity that relates to believers only. So we go through adversity for which we classify as suffering for blessing or adversity for blessing, where God is specifically tailoring certain negative circumstances and pressures in your life and my life for the purpose of knocking off our human viewpoint arrogance and building in us the character of Jesus Christ. And that's the idea that Paul has here. This is the adversity kingdom endurance matrix. This isn't general adversity that any unbeliever can face or a believer may face as divine discipline. But this is that adversity that is specifically tailor-made for you in your spiritual life to get you to grow and to accelerate your spiritual growth. Because that spiritual growth is going to be the basis of your rewards and blessings, uh, both in time and in eternity, and it is designed to prepare you to be a leader, a ruler, a priest in the coming kingdom. It is developing in each of us that personal sense of our eternal destiny, that we have a destiny to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, but if we don't prepare for that now, then we will forfeit those, those rewards, those blessings in the coming kingdom. We'll still be there, but we will forfeit those responsibilities we would have had because we do not have the capacity to rule and reign with Jesus Christ because we failed in the spiritual life. So you have two categories of adversity. One is just general suffering or adversity. comes from living in the cosmic system, the law of volitional responsibility. And the second category, specific adversity directed to the believer for blessing to accelerate spiritual growth. Third point, adversity is what the outside circumstances of life do to you. Adversity is what the external or outside circumstances of life do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. External pressure is unavoidable. That's point four. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is outside. It's external. We can't control it. But point number four, we recognize it's inevitable. You can't avoid going through problems and, and heartache and adversity in life. Number one, you're living in the cosmic system. And number two, as a child of God, God is going to use that to advance your spiritual growth. However, stress is optional. Stress is what you do to yourself under point three. Stress is optional under point four. Let me review those. Point three, adversity is what outside circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Point four, adversity is inevitable. 
Stress is optional. See, stress is the result of your trying to handle life's problems on human resources. Stress is trying to solve life's problems based on the sin nature. Stress is the result of reacting to life circumstances through mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins, or trying to use human good to solve your problems. Stress in the soul uh, fragments your soul. It destroys your happiness, and it will lead to a failure in the Christian life. Stress is the result of sin nature control. It, if it continues, you will degenerate in your spiritual life, which may cause you to forfeit rewards and crowns in eternity and in the millennial kingdom. Point number six, stress perpetuated in the soul results in failure to glorify God and therefore spiritual failure in this life. You continue under sin nature control, continue to react. Now, we're all to some degree going to react to some things instantly, worry, anger, whatever it is, and we instantly say, no, that's wrong, confess the sin, claim the promise, and move on and move forward in a spiritual life. We have to remember point number seven. The only solution is the divine solution, and that the human solution is no solution. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. In verse 9, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. That, it's more, that means it's more than enough. God supplies everything we need to handle any difficulty, heartache, problem in life, no matter what it is. God knew about it in eternity past, and He gave us the resources today to handle that situation. And it is designed to teach us to depend upon His strength and not our strength. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12 states, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is matured in weakness. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, those are different categories of adversity. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So John picks up this idea and he says we're all co-participants. We all share in this same situation. This is part of the Christian modus operandi. We are involved in this adversity kingdom endurance matrix in Jesus Christ. So that's who he is. That's the first part of the outline. Who's the author? This is John, who is looking on himself not as an authority figure, but as another member of the body of Christ, advancing to spiritual maturity, who must also uh, apply the same spiritual principles in his own spiritual life. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the adversity, kingdom, endurance, which are in Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos. This is his circumstance. He is in exile. Patmos is a small island. It's crescent-shaped. I was going to show you pictures, which we'll have to put off till next week, because the uh, computer is having problems. But Patmos is an island that is it's a beautiful Greek island. 
part of a gr- group of islands called the Dodecanese, which are off the western shore of Turkey. It is uh, crescent-shaped, and the two ends of the crescent point eastward, so this provides a harbor, a safe harbor in times of storm, and so it was a port even in ancient times. And if you were uh, traveling by ship from Rome to Ephesus, it would be the last place you stopped before you came to Ephesus. And if you were on the way from Ephesus to Rome, it would be the first place you would stop. Now, when we took our trip... This last year, we stopped off at Patmos about 7 in the morning, and we were went up on the hillside and sat where allegedly uh, the Apostle John sat when he received the revelation. And we heard uh, Dr. Ed Heinsohn do a uh, <clears throat> talk where he took us through Revelation in 45 minutes. Ed does a great job of that. Just a great survey, and we sat up there, beautiful hillside, beautiful blue sky in the Aegean Sea, uh, tremendous location. But this was a, a harbor, even in ancient times, a safe place to put in in times of storm. And then after we left there, we were in Ephesus within just about two hours. It's 40 miles to the coast, and so it wasn't very far. But in ancient times, of course, that would have been a good day's sail. And it would have gotten John out of uh, a place of influence in Ephesus. So he was exiled there uh, by Domitian. So he was on the island that is called Patmos. And then the text says it gives the reason for this, for his being on the island. It uses two prepositions in the Greek, or the same preposition twice, the preposition dia, plus the accusative, which should be translated because. You have the preposition dia, plus the accusative case for the noun, and this indicates the reason for something or the cause. John says he was there because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, we have a similar phrase to this back in verse 2. In verse 2, we are we finish out the, the thought of verse 1. Verse 1, we're told that Jesus Christ communicated the revelation, communicated it by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in that verse, word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ referred to the content of the book of Revelation. But that's not what is indicated in verse 9, even though you have the same words. If, if that were true, then it, what the text would be saying, that he was on the island for the purpose of receiving the revelation. But he wasn't on the island for the purpose of receiving the revelation. He was on the island because of persecution and exile. And it was while he was on the island he received the, the revelation. And these terms, uh, the Word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ, are used elsewhere in Scripture to refer to the teaching of doctrine. And so John is on the island of Patmos because he taught the Word of God and because he gave testimony about Jesus Christ. So even though they're similar phrases to what you have in verse 2, they don't have the same import here. Here it's talking about the fact that as an apostle and a pastor, he was teaching And for that reason, he was teaching doctrine, and for that reason, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Now, that gives his geographical location. 
It's on the island of Patmos, but it doesn't give his spiritual situation. Verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, here's a difficult phrase to try to understand. In the Greek, it looks like this. In numity. E-N. P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I. In numity. This is a dative case of pneuma, the word for spirit. And this is a preposition in meaning by, with, indicate instrumentality, indicate location. These are the two main ideas. Instrument, which would be means, or location. Now, most of the time in the Greek New Testament, this phrase in pneumaty, we've seen it many times, indicates instrumentality, walk by means of the Spirit, be filled by means of the Spirit. We see that all the time, but that instrumentality doesn't fit here. I was by means of the Spirit on the Lord's day. That doesn't fit. We have to make a decision here. Now, some people say, well, what this means is he was filled with the Spirit. Well, yeah, he was filled with the Spirit, but that's not what this means. He was filled with the Spirit because he's in a position of he's given revelation. He's in fellowship with God because of what's going on here. We know that, but that's not the import of this. It's not instrumentality. See, filled with the Spirit is really filled by means of the Spirit, in plus the dative. In Ephesians 5.18, this is not an instrumental use of the dative here. Where it is in 5.18, so it's got to be something else. It probably has a locative sense, because what we're talking about is a special kind of revelatory circumstance. If you were here first hour, we talked about the fact that in... Acts chapter 10, Peter has a trance where there's a revelation. This is the same idea that there is this, this uh, opening or unveiling of the eyes, as it were, so that John no longer looks at just the physical realm, but he is now able to see into the spiritual realm. He is able to see that other reality so that God is able to reveal to him what is going to take place? Uh, in the original Greek, you don't have capitals or lowercase in the sense that we do to indicate whether it's human spirit, Holy Spirit, or just the sense of the word pneuma there. If you look in your Bible, if there's an uppercase there, the translator made an interpretive decision and decided this had to do with the Holy Spirit. We know it has to do with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the agent of divine revelation. But that doesn't mean that this use of spirit is talking about the Holy Spirit. We've seen that the word pneuma itself even refers to spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So the word has a broad range of meaning. But the idea here, and I think it was an idiomatic use, was that he was in a this spiritual realm where he was able, to, where he was going to be given special divine revelation. It's not the same as the filling of the Spirit that you and I experience, and it's not the same as walking by the Spirit. It is in a, in a situation where he is receiving divine revelation. It's on the Lord's Day, which is 
the first day of the week. So he is, it's Sunday, our Sunday. He's in the Lord's Day, and he heard behind him a loud voice. He didn't hear a trumpet. He heard a loud voice that's so loud and so attention-grabbing, it's like a trumpet. In the ancient world, the trumpet was used like our bugle to grab somebody's attention, to announce something. And so he hears this loud voice that strikes him like a trumpet. It grabs his attention. It catches his attention. And the voice says, and here we have another textual problem. If you're looking at your King James, it says, uh, you'll have the phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That's only in the Textus Receptus. Majority text doesn't have it. The critical text doesn't have it. It was inserted uh, later. This is a poor reading, so delete that if you've got a King James or New King James. The voice says simply, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. The phrase, which are in Asia, which is in the King James or New King James, isn't in the original. That's added. He's already designated that back in verse, back in verse 4. Verse 11 simply says that the loud voice says, What you see, that is in this vision, the first vision of the book, write in a book and then send it to the seven churches. So he's going to write everything down and send everything to all seven churches. Not just the seven letters to the seven churches. But the entire book of Revelation is to be written down and sent, one complete copy sent to each of these seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. If you put those on a map, you follow a clockwise rotation. This wasn't the normal way you would travel between them. But each of these was a central city. And each of these was a, the center of their postal district. So there's a purpose behind this. Each of these cities, rep, as we'll see, represents a certain type of church in the church age. But each of these is also important because of its role within that particular postal district. So John emphasizes here that he is to write down what he sees, the vision, the word to see, is used 56 times in the book of Revelation, emphasizing this visionary aspect of Revelation. We'll see what he saw next time when we begin with verse 12, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word today, to be challenged with these things, to be reminded that in our own spiritual life, we're no different from an apostle. We face adversity, and we're to handle it with your word that we might grow in advance to spiritual maturity and preparation for your coming kingdom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's not a matter of, of works. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of doing anything other than simply believing Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that that alone, His work on the cross alone, is sufficient to give you uh, eternal salvation, to justify you, and to provide forgiveness for sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.